everybody, this is Bob Goodwin, founder of Career Club, and welcome to another episode of Career Club Live. If you're not familiar with Career Club, please check us out at career.club. Uh, today, we wanted to focus on a new offering from Career Club called Next Placement, Career Club's answer to the traditional outplacement category, where we're taking a more empathetic, human-centered approach to help colleagues who are transitioning to the next stage of their career. So again, please check us out at career.club. Uh, today, we are especially pleased to welcome Katie George from McKinsey. Katie is a senior partner as well as chief people officer and a leader in the firm's operations practice. Katie is responsible for McKinsey's global people functions, which includes professional development and learning, recruiting, HR, performance evaluation, people analytics, and other core capabilities. Wow. She's also a member of the Shareholders Council, the firm's equivalent of the board of directors, and the firm's 15-person global leadership team. So with that, welcome, Katie. It's wonderful to be here, Bob. Thank you. No, thank you so much. Where do we find you today? Where You look like you might be traveling. I am traveling. I'm actually in Brooklyn, New York, which isn't too far from my house in New Jersey. But uh, I'm here uh, where we actually are gathering uh, a group to elect our future senior partners. So very wow, important so that, this week. That is a big day. <laughs> so, um, well, again, we, we are just especially pleased to have you today, Katie. Um, you know, the firm is extremely well regarded. It's the creme de la creme of the consulting firms. And as the chief people officer, I'm very much looking to our conversation here in just a minute. But before we get to that, as is our want, we like to do just a little bit of an icebreaker so folks can get to know you personally. So uh, where were you born and raised? Uh, I was born and raised in Elmhurst, Illinois, which is a suburb about 20 miles west of Chicago. Awesome. And uh, has, I think, the best pizza in the world, Roberto's <laughs> and Nancy's stuffed pizza. So if you want oh, great Chicago nice. pizza, thin and thick crust, you go to Elmhurst. Nice. <laughs> and and that's, uh, that's flexing considering you're saying that in Brooklyn, of all I places. know. That's very true. <laughs> exactly. Fighting words in Brooklyn, for sure. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> so um, where did you go to university? I went to Oberlin College in Ohio. Now, okay. So uh, we're in Cincinnati, as you know. So how the heck did you find Oberlin College? Uh, well, actually, they um, uh, their choir used to come and tour, and they have Oberlin has a wonderful conservatory of music, and uh, I'm a singer, and uh, I always sang in the choir as well as um, you know other musical comedies and things like that, uh, and they would come with their choir once a year to our school, and so I was really excited about potentially joining uh, their choir in their music program, and found out they also had a great college, and so that's where I ended up. Now, I think you have one other degree that you might want to tell people about. <laughs> I uh, then later went to Harvard uh, and did a Ph.D. in business economics, where I studied labor economics uh, and operations management. Wow, that's that's very impressive. Um, just a little bit about your family, Katie. You mentioned that you guys are in New Jersey. Yeah, uh, I have a husband, Paul, and one son, Peter, who is 23. So he graduated from Boston College just last spring. Um, and has his first job. He's living in Virginia, yeah. working for a law firm. Yay. Getting kids off the payroll is a good thing. Exactly. Exactly. We, we, we have four and we're free at last, free at last. Um, do you mind sharing just a little bit about your career arc, Katie? Um, sure. Um, I, um, I interestingly had applied to McKinsey even from Oberlin College, but was was turned down. Uh, I um, 
uh, really didn't understand uh, a lot about business and business language. And, um, uh, and but had a really wonderful conversation with a couple of different partners in our Cleveland office who said, you might love what we do. Come back to us when you're ready. Um, so I did a couple of years of um, work with a economic consulting firm doing um, antitrust and pricing analysis, et cetera, um, which was interesting and prepared me for my PhD. Um, and then uh, I, uh, in my PhD work did a much more applied work looking at how uh, companies organized uh, for manufacturing um, different mm -hmm production systems, different workforce approaches, really cared a lot about labor force issues. Um, and then joined McKinsey after that uh, and uh, have had a long career at McKinsey focused mostly on manufacturing and supply chain, but always with a very strong focus on uh, workforce development, um, upskilling, issues like that, mm. uh, as well as and workforce engagement. Um, and then inside the firm, I've always had leadership roles that really uh, have allowed me to uh, really get in touch with um, our people mission and um, how we support uh, our workforce inside McKinsey. And uh, so that I think over a 25 year career then led naturally to being asked to be our people, our chief people officer. Uh, and that's a role I started about a year and a half ago. Well, I'm very much looking forward to to learning more about you know, your thoughts on people issues, workforce issues. Obviously, it's super top of mind and, and you have a unique perspective to offer. But before we get to that, just uh, one last uh, icebreaker question. Um, what, what do we find you doing when you're not at work and you're you're just being Katie? <laughs> well, um, I still try to sing a little bit, but mostly just in the shower or, or at church. Um, I love chocolate. And uh, so I am both a chocolate connoisseur eater, but I also love to bake. And so I bake a lot and I cook a lot. Um, my son grew up playing ice hockey. So we are mm. um, uh, hockey parents and uh, have become huge hockey fans. So that's another thing I do in my spare time. All right. So, so give listeners a little bit of a uh, a heads up on some chocolate that they might really want to try that they don't know about. Ah, okay. Well, in New York, I really like Jacques Torres, uh, which comes in these orange kind of boxes and it has a really wonderful dark chocolate taste. And uh, they have a hot chocolate mix called Wicked mm. Chocolate, which uh, has a little spice to it. And that's one of my favorites. Awesome. Our daughter lives in Norway. So we have gotten very yeah. into Norwegian chocolate in, in yes. an unhealthy way. <laughs> yes, you have those little um, heart-shaped thin chocolate wafers. Yes, I have a, a friend, a colleague actually, who every time we're together at a global meeting, she brings me another box of those, which are, are very dangerous, but very delicious. Mm -hmm. That's how we actually bribe our neighbor when we go out of town traveling <laughs> to like, you know, check the mail and cut the grass as we, we bring him those heart-shaped ones. <laughs> favorite. But enough about chocolate. So uh, in January, I believe you were at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, one of the things that we had chatted about in prepping for this was, you know, some of the top issues that you know you were both listening to and probably contributing towards. Uh, and one of the main things that we had talked about was hybrid work and how yeah. that was top of mind. Could you maybe open up the conversation? Just why is that such a big topic and why was that something that was so top of mind for the CEOs at the World Economic Forum? Yeah, it really was a top of mind issue. Um, and I think it's interesting, you know, we're seeing just dramatic changes in, um, in in how we work. We've, you know, for a long time been talking about the future of work. And, you know, we'd yes. publish papers on it, et cetera. 
Um, now it's here and it's still not stable, if you will. So we see, um, uh, thanks to COVID, a huge acceleration in digital technology, which um, has changed how people work in lots of different ways, but especially how we interact like we are right now um, yes. over uh, you know, a virtual medium. I'm not in some studio with you um, right. and I can do meetings you know, back to back to back like this all day, right? And mm -hmm. so um, we've created all of this new flexibility in where and how people work with virtual uh, capabilities. Um, but there are some real downsides and some concerns about whether we can monitor people's productivity as effectively as we yeah. could when they were in the office, um, whether we are creating a sense of belonging, uh, whether we're connecting people to purpose, uh, whether people have the same career development opportunities. And um, I think that you know we see a combination of a change in technology, but also a real change in workforce expectations um, mm -hmm. coming out of COVID. Uh, and so we're not in a stable place where everybody is aligned on what the right answer is. Uh, we have companies that are insistent that everybody get back to the workplace and kind of go back to how things were. And we have other companies that are just as insistent um, that a purely virtual workforce um, could be perfectly satisfactory um, and everything in between. Yeah, I was reading just uh, I, in this morning, I think it was in the journal where mm -hmm. it was talking about in Europe, that yeah. going back to office is like almost 90% or something like that. And in the U.S., it's probably closer to 70. And, and yeah. it kind of is, is between some ranges, but obviously significantly higher in other parts of the world. Um, is that jibe with what you guys are yeah. seeing? We're seeing exactly the same thing. Um, and, you know, so what, we, what we've been trying to do is say, what we really care about for our teams is that we solve for, really good outcomes. Um, you know, there's been lots of polling of, of colleagues and employees about what you prefer, or how important is flexibility. Um, and that is actually, of course, very important. I think that the demand for flexibility is not going to go away, even if we do continue to see a, a change in the balance of power, if you will, between employers and employees. I think uh, the demand for flexibility is here to stay. Um, and we can offer flexibility because of the changes in technology um, and work practices. Um, but what we are trying to do is really understand what's driving the outcomes that we care about. When do we get the best client or customer feedback? Mm -hmm. um, when do we see the best skill acquisition and development um, of our colleagues? Um, when do we see um, the the most uh, kind of fun, you know, and and kind mm -hmm. of sense of purpose? And, and when do we see um, the best retention, frankly? Um, and what we are seeing is that there is kind of a happy medium that, um, when our teams are together for about 50% of the time, not a two day a week kind of rule, but over time uh, are getting together about 50%, we see a real reduction in uh, attrition uh, and we see uh, an increase in uh, personal development and, um, uh, and, and uh, the ability to uh, create new experiences, new skills. So we are trying to kind of help our teams figure out what are the models that really drive the best outcomes. Yeah, so you know that's interesting. You know the fifty percent of the time, but I guess sort of traditionally we've bound that in week time increments. Yeah. And and I'm hearing you say maybe that's not the best model that we need to perhaps expand that horizon a little bit. Yeah, and what we're seeing, for example, is that when you're working together at the beginning of a new project, a new initiative, something important. Um, it might be very important to spend some time in person, really bonding, really working through in person what the 
uh, real scope is going to be um, uh, managing some of the conflict that is inevitably going to come as you as you start something. Um, and then there are periods of time when individuals or whole teams are working pretty independently um, on their own kind of pieces of work. And the value of being in person is just not as high. Um, but then there are places where you're trying to do real breakthrough problem solving. Uh, and um, we haven't seen that we can really replicate some of the magic of being together to do real breakthrough innovation um, with uh, technology. Um, but, you know, technology's improving all the time. So I think this balance about what the benefits and, and pros and cons of different modalities of work will continue to change and shift. Yeah, it's sort of the right tool for the right job, right? Right, you know, exactly when right. When you're in a collaboration-intensive, ideation-heavy phase of a project, people work better together and those ideas yep. spark. And there's something very natural about the analog thing of like a whiteboard. Yeah. Right? Just like you know, scribbling and drawing, like, no, 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 let's try this again. Yeah. And like trying to fumble your way through that in a, in a in a digital kind of way doesn't maybe work as well. But then as we progress down the project timeline, it's like, okay, now we're just going to do data analysis. Well, yeah. I don't need to be in the office to do data analysis as an example. Exactly. I think one of the, you know, um, uh, you know, issues that companies have faced when they've tried to mandate people getting back together um, is that people come back into an office to do exactly the same work they were doing at home, but potentially less comfortably and with a, the irritation of a commute and with less flexibility to manage their work around um, their personal uh, demands as well. Um, but we do see, um, to your point, you know, we are getting better at virtual collaboration. So um, I don't think that the, you know, the virtual whiteboards are quite as good as a whiteboard, you know, on a wall in a conference room yet, but they will get there. And we are seeing some places where people are really taking advantage of um, hybrid kind of work uh, approaches to create cross-site collaboration in a way that we never had before. Mm. So it used, you know, people annotating on a document altogether or annotating in a, in a Zoom meeting. These are things that are actually raising a kind of voices and an ability to collaborate uh, in a way that that people are just not used to and have, have found a way to do. So we'll continue to get better, I think, at virtual work, and we'll continue to get better at really thinking about fit for purpose in-person work as well. Yes. Well, and then that's probably the best way to put it, but when it's fit for purpose, like what are we mm -hmm. trying to accomplish? And then, as you said earlier, being outcome-oriented, Right. Yeah. So let's focus on what are we actually trying to do here and then make that sort of the king measure. Are we actually accomplishing what we set to, to accomplish? And then I think if I heard you correctly, the other piece of that is, and is that positively impacting, you know, the employee experience, maybe as measured by satisfaction, personal growth, retention, things like that. Exactly. Um, you know, at McKinsey, we talk about having a dual mission. We're about creating fantastic impact for our clients, but also creating a really fantastic growth opportunity yeah. and place to thrive for our people. And I think that mindset is the right one to bring to these questions about hybrid work. How do you do both at once? Uh, and um, and I do think we'll see continued change. And And of course, you know, all teams don't do the same kind of thing. If you have a team which really is doing mostly transactional, you know, kind of independent work, maybe being in person is less important, uh, even over a longer period of time. Um, so I want to pick up on the point about, you know, sort of that dual purpose mm -hmm. and, and the, the, you know, thriving 
in the career. And one of the things that I know the firm talks about is the self-authorship. Yeah. Could you explain that that notion to listeners? Yeah. Well, we've always had um, a uh, kind of value around something we call make your own McKinsey. So, um, you know, when you join our firm, there's a lot of flexibility and over time kind of crafting the uh, kind of professional journey that you're most excited about, learning new things and then deciding what it is that you want to focus on, what expertise do you want to have, what type of clients and what kind of work do you want to do over time. And we're really trying to translate that now even more explicitly into how we think about uh, people's learning paths and and skill acquisition. So we're talking about how do you self-author kind of your journey in terms of building different skills over time and therefore creating opportunities for yourself over time. Um, we, for example, have kind of flipped the switch in that we used to, before our reviews, ask people, we, we would tell them, this is what we value. How have you done against what we value? And we're now saying, what is your leadership growth journey? So what is the kind of professional aspiration that you have? Um, what skills have you been building and experiences? And what do you want to build? And how can we help you? And how can we help coach you around the level of your aspiration and the kind of skills that you'll need and then make those opportunities available? It's wow. interesting because this sounds like kind of fit for purpose for you know, a McKinsey kind of environment, right, where we have consulting teams that come together with lots of different profiles and backgrounds, and we serve clients in lots of different industries and functions. So there's kind of lots of opportunity to self-author. Um, but I was talking about this concept with a group of CHROs in India, um, and most of them were CHROs of large industrial conglomerates. Mm -hmm. And what was so interesting was um, I shared, you know, some of the things we were doing, and I I actually didn't think that that was one they would pick up on as something for our conversation. I thought they might talk about, you know, be more interested in some of the other things uh, that I was talking about. But they picked up on this one and they said that just like at McKinsey, um, they're the, the skills that are required uh, to, to do work are changing so rapidly because we're now bringing together digital and analytics into really any industry, any function. Uh, it's no longer enough to have, you know, a really good, you know, advanced analytics or digital team sitting off somewhere who can provide support. We really need to integrate those skills into the fundamentals of how we do work in every part of an organization. And so as they were talking about how do they upskill uh, folks and how do they stay abreast of all the rapid changes um, in how work happens and what technology is. They talked about how important it was that people really take more responsibility for self-authoring their own path and adapting their skills to what they see as needed because things are moving too fast and there's too much complexity to have some HR group sit in some conference room writing out career paths. And it, it is so it is solving for flexibility and kind of autonomy, which we know is a huge motivator um, for, you know, for human beings um, and therefore, um, you know, for our workforces. But we're also solving for creating a talent model that is really dynamic and that is flexible and, and changes kind of much more organically um, in response to the needs uh, of, of the organization. So we're going to we're going to pause here for a minute. We, we're, we're talking about, you know, self-authorship and, and the very dynamic nature 
of mm -hmm. the skills that are required, the technology that is available, and, and really just having more agency right. over one's career. And, mm -hmm. and just to put a bow on the point you were just making, we, we work with a um, uh, licensed counselor uh, and with, with some of our clients that are, you know, experience a loss and they need to you know, really kind of get to a, a healthier place mentally, mm -hmm. emotionally. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the biggest drivers of stress, fear, depression is a sense of a lack of agency. Right. It's like when you say make your own McKinsey, mm -hmm. uh, it, I'm smiling because the name of our course that we provide our curriculum that we provide our clients is called make your own weather because yeah. it's sort of the same idea yeah. is that, that, that all these things can be happening and it's all true. And I can't stop AI and I can't stop, you know, technology. I can't stop hybrid, whatever is happening externally, but I still have a lot of agency. I can always control my attitude. I can always control my actions. And, and it's very liberating for people to, to feel like things aren't just happening to them, but they, they actually have a very strong voice in where their path goes. So that resonates quite a bit. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're all, um, and we've done a lot of research on, you know, the great resignation, right. That, that COVID, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, created and, we're now talking about it as the great renegotiation because you know, we don't see that that things are going to flip all the way back to how they were. And we see that um, when we poll people who left the workforce and, you know, what would it take to get you back? Because, you know, we still have record low unemployment and huge gaps in terms of uh, being able to bring in people with the skills we need uh, across industries, even while we're seeing layoffs in, in other industries. So we still have this a very interesting and kind of unusual uh, mix in the labor market. Um, so when we study people who have left and we're talking about what would it take you to bring, bring you back, um, they talk about purpose, they talk about flexibility mm -hmm. and autonomy agency, to your point, and then they talk about the ability to create a real career and they no longer see it as I want some parental kind of company to create a career for me. They now see that they have a lot more flexibility to do things themselves, self-employment, gig economy, yes. moving from one place to another. Um, and what they're trying to do is build the skills and uh, the kind of opportunity to make things better for themselves and grow uh, in their roles over time. And so I think that this is, is quite important. I've, I've always liked Daniel Pink's book um, where he summarizes kind of what drives people's motivation uh, into three things. It's about autonomy. It's about mastery, right? Skill mastery. Um, and it's about purpose. And I do think that um, COVID has just shown a real spotlight on all three of those. And given, uh, I think, uh, workers across many different types of jobs and many different industries, kind of the sense that they can solve for those things and should take things, you know, and should expect that uh, from employers. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So sort of those three, I'm a huge Dan Pink fan too. We end up talking a lot about to sell as human mm -hmm. because, you know, our, our philosophy is, you know, around uh, a career transition is that you're selling yourself. And if you haven't been skilled in how to sell and what is sales really? So we like Dan Pink a ton, but there's three circles. What resonates with me on that, it's kind of a hedgehog concept. If I could borrow back from good to great, right. With Jim Collins, like mastery is what am I really good at or what can I be 
the best in the world at. Purpose is passion. What do I care about? Mm -hmm. What am I interested in? Because I have to be curious. I have to want to continue to learn more about yeah. something because I'm actually interested in it. Yes. And then your third circle there is the autonomy one. And like, and I want to have a sense of control over all this. And the Venn diagram of those three circles is a sweet spot. I love that you brought up kind of the learning aspect. You know, one of the other things we're talking about is that um, at McKinsey is that we have to reinvent apprenticeship. So, um, you know, it used to be that apprenticeship was the older person like me, you know, teaching the young person coming in, you know, the skills of how to do this job, how to be a consultant, et cetera. And that's true, you know, across uh, lots of different industries. I see that also in, in my clients with frontline manufacturing, right? How do the people who've been around for a while kind of teach the art of the manufacturing to the young people coming in? And now we see some of the people coming into, whether it's McKinsey or manufacturing, as having kind of the digital capabilities, the, um, the fluency with digital tools, with data, um, and they're coaching the, you know, the people who've been around for a while. So we've talked about how an apprenticeship now really is two-way. And one yes. of the things we say is everybody is a learner and everybody is a teacher every day. Uh, and this whole notion of a mindset of learning through your whole career, I think, is just more important than ever right now. Now, that mutuality is is really, really important. And you know, I had a conversation with one of my colleagues literally yesterday, and he's 25. And mm -hmm. yes, it's true on the technology stuff. But what we were actually talking about was just communication styles, mm. intergenerational communication styles, yes. something as simple as thumbs up smiley face emojis actually means something different yeah. almost in a snarky way to Gen Z versus my dad uses smiley faces all the time and it bugs me. Like, why does <laughs> it bug you? Well, because the way that Gen Z might interpret a smiley face or a thumbs up, I mean, so it's not even technology exactly. It's just how to communicate in a yeah. way that, you know, the other person can receive what, and not misinterpret what, what you're actually trying to say. Well, it's interesting. One of the things that uh, I find interesting about Gen Z is the studies that shown that they also problem solve in different ways in that they are used to using social media to crowdsource solutions to things. So they're much faster at networking and finding ideas and bringing them together, which, of course, is a wonderful skill to have. <laughs> and uh, so there really are, to your point, um, both you know, technology related things, but also I think, um, you know, mindset, cultural, generational uh, mm -hmm. things to learn. And I'm sure that's been true, you know, forever. Every generation can learn yes. from the next one. Yeah, that crowdsourcing is funny. That, that I think we used to call that market research. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is market research. I got to through your friends. <laughs> Let's go ask a thousand people and see what they said. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so we're going to pause here for just a minute and pick up the conversation, but this has been fascinating so far. And in the next uh, uh, part of the conversation, we'll pick up on skills architecture, if that's okay. Okay, great. Cool. Thank you.